Welcome to the Being Giants podcast, a show by academics for academics. I'm one of your hosts, Joyce Yeager, and today I'm speaking with Cooper Harris, who's a data scientist at Joby Aviation. We'll talk about how he transitioned from a seismologist to a data scientist at a startup. I wanted to note that we'll touch on a couple of things that we can probably expand upon in later episodes, but I wanted to give them just a little bit of context at the beginning. One of those is that, as you'll hear, Cooper comes from a family of scientists. This is actually kind of common that uh, scientists come from families of scientists. It's a way that you get an early access point, and it can kind of give you the privilege of knowing how the system works. But I think it can also lead to a lot of difficult expectations from yourself and family members. And another thing we touch on is some differences in opinions between uh, Cooper and his advisor in grad school. And this happens a lot. And you'll hear just one side of the story here. But I think it's important to hear about some of those challenges that you can face with an advisor um, because those relationships get really complicated. Uh, In this case, Cooper and his former advisor still collaborated together. uh, So they had a really positive outcome. And with that, we'll start the show. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Cooper Harris. Cooper is a data scientist at Joby Aviation. Before that, he was a postdoc at the University of Strasbourg and a PhD student at the University of Southern California, which is how I know him. He also got a Master of Science in Electrical Engineering at USC. And before that, he got a Bachelor's of Science in Earth Science at UNC Chapel Hill. Cooper, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. Awesome. So I think we'll talk about your um, work at Joby later. For starters, I'd love to hear how you got interested in science and earth science, um, if that happened during undergrad or if that was something that kind of came about during your childhood. I think that um, in a nutshell, I kind of always saw myself as being a scientist. My father's a scientist, he's a neurologist, and there are other scientists on his side of the family. My grandfather, maternal grandfather, um, is a dentist. So I don't know, there was always kind of an expectation, both internal and external, for me to do something at a grad school level or further. And sciences made sense for me because I have a ton of energy. I love asking questions. Apparently, I was super obnoxious as a child in terms of wanting, you know, physical and metaphysical phenomena explained just at a whim. And so I viewed becoming a scientist and undergoing scientific training as a way for me to be more self-sufficient at answering all the stuff I'm curious about. You know, all the scientists, all the sciences are kind of interrelated in that regard. It's about asking the right questions and answering them to the best of our abilities. So I was just kind of in it for the vague promise of truth, I guess. Wow, cool. So did you, did earth science catch your interest really early or was that like more unknowns? How'd you get interested in earth science? Honestly, I think the best explanation is, was a single professor. I took her class, it was called Violent Earth at UNC and it was about you know natural disasters and she is a seismologist and we got along really well. I thought the course material was really compelling. It seemed like the intersection of a lot of different things. She clearly you know, wielded math and computer science in order to approach her own research. And she told stories that related to the economy, to people's lives, to 
disaster movies that might capture the interest of a young man. I don't know. <laughs> and basically, it seemed like it was a pretty good mix of a lot of things. I wasn't going to be studying one particular atom. I was going to be studying a really large, high-dimensional system using a bunch of different tools. And that appealed to me. But honestly, at the, the crux of it, I really formed a bond with her. She is still one of the coolest, most intelligent people I've ever met. And she chose me to do field work with her around North Carolina, in Appalachia, and in Peru as well. I wow. went down. Right, so I got, I got my, um, you know, I got my feet wet with some field research, and she also that was the first time I'd ever written code. She started me coding. So her research is based on seismic imaging. She was part of an effort to blanket the United States in seismometers to image what's going on in the interior of the Earth. And um, there are a lot of reasons why people might be interested in knowing what's going on in the interior. And I kind of just signed up to be her sidekick. Wow. And so how, how many years are we talking for this work with this professor? I think my very first semester, I, I took her class. And then she went on sabbatical for a year. So I just took other classes, including but not limited to like German and folklore and stuff that I don't necessarily draw upon as much now. But I took some fun classes. And then when she came back, I wanted to hear about her research. So I went to her office hours, and she introduced me to the, um, to the department chair. And he basically said, if you study this, you know, it seems like you're going to do well. And if you study this, it's likely that you'll be able to travel, and you will probably get a free ride to grad school. So it was kind of an intersection of immediate interest, adventure, and sort of a good long-term prognosis for what this was going to turn into. Yeah. Awesome. And did you, so is she like a, is she imaging the earth to understand like how it's moving at like a large scale or like more quick, like, you know, earthquake, like how rapid are earthquakes happening? Like what part of seismology were you really working on in undergrad? She is long scale, both spatially and temporally. She was interested in looking at what happens to, you know, when mountains are built, we see the topography, we see that deformation on the surface. But what does that deformation look like at depth? You know, sort of what happens when plates collide on the underside of things? We kind of just look at the top. And so she was interested in stuff, including but not limited to like delaminations, the notion that when you slam two plates into one another, they, you know, they, uh, they deform one another and then parts of them, the denser parts of them detach and sink. She was looking for evidence of that beneath the, you know, the, the Appalachians which used to be, I think they, they used to, imagine the Himalayas long ago. <laughs> and so, yeah, you were working on tectonic plate movement scale problems with her. That's right. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And were you doing similar work in Peru? Yes. So we were looking at basically the thickness of the lithosphere going from, you know, extreme West Coast South America up into the Andes. And... This was a sort of um, companion seismic deployment to work that had been done in Chile and Argentina. So they're just kind of moving further north along the west coast of South America. Cool. Along the, yeah, and which is a much younger mountain range than the Appalachians. So they're actively right. forming. Yeah. Right. Still volcanoes there. Yeah. Yeah. Still a lot of earthquakes, too. They're still in adolescence, you know, the, the Andes. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so you already knew you wanted to go to grad school. So how did you pick USC and how, how did that differ and how is it similar to the work that you were doing um, in undergrad? So I think at the highest level, I wanted to go to, like you said, I knew I wanted to go to grad school and it made sense. So both of those boxes were checked. Um, and as with a lot of my life, I feel as though I really am, you know, the beneficiary of circumstance because it just so happened that right when I was finishing undergrad, my advisor, Lara Wagner at UNC, knew of Megan Miller at USC, who had just gotten a grant to do work similar to what we'd been doing in Peru, but in Indonesia, and was looking for a new PhD student who was you know, into spending time in the field. Ah, oh, perfect. So it, it really it really aligned. I felt really lucky, and I applied to a number of other schools, and I did get into multiple programs, but I chose USC because of the project and because of LA. Yeah, nice place to live. Um, Okay, I would love to talk about the Indonesia project because I've heard I've heard about it from you and a couple of other people from USC. But yeah, can you give us like the lowdown of the project? Right. Elevator talk of the project is Indonesia is home to some of the largest earthquakes in the world, also home to some of the most destructive earthquakes in the world because of how many people there are. So it's a co-location of a lot of people and a lot of energy being released in the form of earthquakes. It's also sort of an end member in terms of plate tectonics in the sense that you have strange tectonic ingredients that don't really seem to show up anywhere. The plates are wildly arcuate, they're highly curved, and you have a, a continent that is subducting beneath an oceanic plate, which challenges a lot of the simpler and earlier models of plate tectonics in the first place. If it's all density driven, then why do you have something less dense, or sorry, why do you have something uh, yeah, less dense sinking beneath something that's denser. So it's complicated for a lot of reasons, and it is compelling in terms of human interest for a lot of reasons. And I guess the other you know key ingredient here is that it's not really known. Hmm. Um, Indonesia has a complicated geopolitical history, which I am not foolish enough to try and recall right now. <laughs> but... Um, Suffice it to say that it is very complicated, and in the late 90s, early 2000s, southeastern Indonesia experienced a, a civil war, a subsequent genocide, and a secession, which create, led to the creation of Timor-Leste, East Timor, which is a country in southeastern Indonesia. So that whole area, which is really at the, the nexus of a lot of these, a lot of this, you know, geological intrigue was off limits to foreign researchers. Hmm. Because of safety. Because of safety, because of the political situation. Up until fairly recently, Indonesia was ruled by a dictator. And so this part of the world has opened up a lot recently, both to vacationers, researchers, and just people living normal lives there. Mm -hmm. So. Cool. So which mm -hmm. plates are we talking about here? Because I like barely know. So what, what's the continental plate that's subducting underneath what oceanic plate? Essentially, the Australian continent is subducting beneath small oceanic plate in Indonesia. Okay. Huh. Wow. Did you find out why? That was the question, right? Of the, of the project? So 
essentially, one of the questions of the project was, what's going on here? How is this, how is this happening? What does it look like on the inside of the Earth? Mm -hmm. We see what's happening here on the outside. You know, the Australian continent is, is subducting. The Indo-Australian plate had been subducting for a long time, um, tens to uh, like decades worth of millions of years. Imagine around 100, on the order of 100 million years of subduction, normal oceanic subduction beneath, um, beneath an island arc region, you know, an oceanic edge of another plate. And at some point, a continent hit that subduction zone. So the Himalayas are as tall as they are today, in part because they have doubly thick crust. The, the Indian plate rammed into the Eurasian plate, a continent-continent collision produced the highest mountains on Earth. Here, you have a continent ramming into an arc. And an arc is a special, it's a special type of oceanic plate. And it means that you have arc volcanism on the plate, so hence the Indonesian islands, all of the landmass there. It is most of it's volcanic, but where we were studying, it's not volcanic. You have these arc islands rising up because of the collision, not because of volcanism. And so people wanted to know why. It's an island arc. It's a part of the island arc that doesn't look anything like the rest of the island arc. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look like any other island arc. And in fact, it's because we just so happen to exist at a point in time where we can see a continent colliding with an arc. Wow. And the continent's the lower plate. Cool. Right. So when you're, so you did fieldwork in Indonesia, like what was that like? Is there like, is the infrastructure situation there different? And like, were you deploying seismometers or were you, like what kind of fieldwork were you doing? We were, our mission was to go and deploy the seismometers and then twice a year come back and check on them to manually download the data. And that's kind of, um, that, that kind of seems like an old timey framework for field work where you have to go back and visit the sites. I think things are increasingly leaning towards telemetry. That's kind of beside the point. But our plan, our whole approach was to go over there, deploy the instruments in very rural Indonesia, and then get the data. We initially went over there intending to cooperate with the equivalent of the USGS. Mm -hmm. And our efforts at partnership were rebuffed. Oh. Um, yeah, because I was gonna ask, there, like, because there's a you know a very important conversation happening about like scientific imperialism, basically, where rich researchers and like you, Europe and the U.S. have the funding to go to these like less explored places. So you you did something, you know, I think that that's aiming to do it correctly. You talked to the USGS equivalent in Indonesia. And then what happened? Then everything fell apart. They wanted to handpick people to send to USC to get PhDs without necessarily requiring them to take GREs or do coursework. They wanted to do this ostensibly as a way to sort of groom the next wave of leadership in their organization because they would have American PhDs. And as it happens now, a lot of people in positions of leadership have Australian PhDs in Indonesia. And they wanted, they wanted American PhDs and um, they also wanted us to take large numbers of their employees into the field with us and pay them really steep per diems. And honestly, we didn't have enough money. Wow, that's a very difficult situation. It's like, 
I can see from their perspective, they're probably like, oh, these guys have limitless money. What's the deal? You know, you can take as many PhD students as you want and not really look like, but from the U.S. perspective, it's actually really hard to get funding for a PhD student. Uh, And it's a lot of work to have a PhD student. And it's, yeah, and grants are very much a certain size and you kind of go in with a plan for how you're going to spend that money. Right, a PhD is a huge asset, positive or negative. And so the, the, the tougher parts of that whole project resulted in good stories and maybe some character built for me. Yeah. So did you guys end up being able to complete the project like as you had originally envisioned? As we had envisioned, maybe. Um, I think that a lot of the finer points of the project were not really constrained. There was kind of precious little direction in terms of details for the project, mm-hmm. which was ultimately one of the more frustrating aspects of the project for me. But we did what we could in terms of we envisaged deploying 30 seismometers for two years across Indonesia, and we accomplished that. Okay. Indonesia and East Timor. So technically, we did work with East Timorese as well, mm-hmm. and that brought its own singular tension to the overall collaborative effort because it's understandable that Indonesians and and, and Timorese governments do not see the eye to eye. Yeah, they've had this whole terrible geopolitical history that you spoke about. Interesting. So and like so at the outcome of your PhD, like what was like your kind of takeaway from your PhD? science-wise? It's interesting. I think the most informative part of my PhD was inward. It wasn't, basically the project was inadvertently a means by which I learned a lot more about myself. Hmm. Yes, I did learn a lot about the research and I think that, you know, it resulted in a number of articles that we wrote and some new ideas, but, um, I don't want to, I don't want to reject your question. I just want to think about it before I answer it because, you know, I don't want to jump the gun here either, but I have moved pretty far away from my PhD research quickly. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's it's not a qualifying exam, but I also, yeah, it can be really jarring when someone's like, tell me the best part about your PhD research. I'm like, oh gosh. Right. I don't want to make it like drawing blood from a stone, as yeah. it were, but I definitely, okay, let's see. In terms of interesting things that I learned from the project, I learned a lot of practical challenges about trying to, um, about trying to analyze time series data that are very noisy. Huh. So there are a number of methodological things that I learned from the overall project. Uh-huh. And definitely I benefited from it. I think we did confirm that there is continental subduction going on. Mm-hmm. That's one of the big upshots of it. That's yeah. a takeaway. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great takeaway. That's a takeaway. And I had the opportunity to work with Max in the field. Max is another dear colleague yeah, of Max Dr. Joyce's. Dr. Yes. Max Dahlquist. <laughs> yep, Dr. Max D. He, um, he went down there with me. And it's funny, all of the data he collected, I don't think they even processed it. Wow. A lot. A lot of that project seemed kind of um, flying by the seat of one's pants. Mm-hmm. And 
which was really good. It was formative for me and for Max. And I think it was formative for some of the professors, the PIs on the project, because a lot of them are younger. Mm -hmm. This is a big learning experience. And we got data out of this, possibly the most valuable upshot of the entire project, just all of the gigabytes of data that we now have from those seismometers. And you know, in perpetuity, we can use that that data set later for something if we want yeah exactly it's like i mean and it's kind of it's kind of the nature of like this kind of science where you're really it's almost like the that project sounds almost like reconnaissance what's going on here no one's done this work we're going to deploy seismometers we have no idea what we're going to get we might use the data this year we might use it 10 years down the line when it's a little easier to process um but science definitely works that way as a point of interest there is a two-year window of privacy on data funded by IRIS, which is the Incorporated Research Institutions for Seismology, um, a branch of USGS, you know, nationally funded. It's for seismologists, and if they give you money and loan you instruments, you can collect your data, to which you have private access for two years. Interesting. After which point it's free game. Wow. And so there was a real temporal deadline in order to get some results out of it. But from my perspective, um, the the questions were not really well defined and advanced. Mm -hmm. So it kind of, a lot of it seemed improvisational. We have this data. Okay, great. What questions can we answer with it? Well, we haven't really asked any questions first, so. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And that's, yeah, you get a really big range in PhD projects. Some of, I mean, mine was kind of more towards that end of like, we're going to work on this problem and see what we get, which worked out really well in my case but then yeah sometimes you get a really direct question phd project where we're like we're gonna ask this question you're gonna answer it in these ways there's like a whole range um and yeah it sounds like yours was very much like let's see what we can get which is yeah has a a lot of challenges it has a lot of challenges there are some positive corollaries to work like that a lot of which are personal but i think that overall it was a little under constrained for me. Yeah. And so while you're at USC, you also got a master's in electrical engineering, which is not a very common thing to do, especially because you didn't come in as a master's in electrical engineering student. You came in as an earth science PhD student. So how did you decide to pick up a little little extra degree on the side? I think that ultimately it ties back to a moment at a conference at AGU when I was talking with my advisor. And you know she is, she's a great human being. She's very talented, very bright. We don't necessarily have the two most compatible personalities or intellectual interests, but it was always very, very civil. And we had a conversation at a conference in which I told her that I wanted to, I'd been messing around with um, some neural networks in Python, just some examples, because I told myself, I'm not really into my research. I need a good backup plan here. Fortunately, I'd been having to write a lot of code to analyze our data. I've heard it said that seismology is a mongrel discipline in the sense that you have to, it's like computer science and physics and study of waves and, and, so, and geology and it's all these things together. And one aspect of that is the computer science. So I told her that I wanted to write some software to apply machine learning to some of our data to see if we could label earthquakes versus non-earthquakes in the data which could be interesting for building a seismic catalog, a lot of applications. And um, she shot me down. So (laughs) at that point, I realized that I wasn't going to get permission to do what I knew would be best for my career. And I guess I can can come clean about this. I I did get a master's in secret. She never found out. She never found out. 
Interesting. I mean, I guess if she ever looks at like your LinkedIn, she'll find out. We are friends on LinkedIn. And I've often wondered. It gave me pause. It gave me pause when I added her to my network. Electrical engineering masters. Right. So she's saying either he's lying on LinkedIn or he has held something from me. (laughs) I withheld that information. Um, This podcast is not about that. But I decided it would be better for me to withhold that information. And I started taking, I took a class about machine learning. And it was taught by one of the preeminent experts in machine learning and statistics at USC. Again, pretty serendipitous. A lot of my a lot of my career has been serendipity and I got along with him right away. I really appreciated how rigorous he was about the math and which I'm drawn to. I think it's kind of a sense of truth, which I'm sort of almost poetically drawn to. I don't know. I'm not a math genius, but I put in the work and when I see how it works, it's really beautiful to me. And so I took his class. I told him my situation. I kind of bore my soul to him. And I said, I'm halfway through this PhD that I'm not really into. And I don't really like what my, you know, potential prospects are thereafter. What can I do? And he said, you're a PhD student. You can take master's classes for free at Viterbi. Why don't you just take all of my classes and see how you do in them? So I just started taking one class a semester and I got really into it. But I had to compartmentalize. I did it truly in parallel. My research for my dissertation had nothing to do with my research for my master's, and which was pretty draining. Yeah, that yeah, that sounds draining. But also, I mean, it can be you can really get lost in your project during a PhD. So it's probably also benefits to having like something else to think about. And yeah, but that sounds hard. It gave me a reference point to look back at what I was doing, and it kind of took me out of the scientific vacuum in which I've been operating. Yeah. Okay, so you're going through this PhD. You're, you said you're not liking your prospects. And I knew that while we were kind of finishing up that you were not so excited about academia and what you were doing. And so then when you said, oh, I'm going to France for a postdoc, I was quite surprised. So I would love to hear about how you got that postdoc and how you chose to do it and what that was like and how it differed from your PhD. Well, again, serendipity comes into play. It just so happens that right as I was applying for postdocs and jobs together, because I didn't know if I would get an offer at all, professionally or academically. So I decided to just double my failure rate and apply to as many jobs as possible. And this really just tremendous professor in Strasbourg. He reached out to me. I applied to a postdoc. He'd posted on something called Euraxis, which is not a bad tool for Americans looking for European postdocs. I sent him an email and then he replied back to me. He was basically studying a new mathematical advancement in tomography. And sort of that was the overall buzzword for my dissertation, seismic tomography. It's applying in It's applying inverse theory to earthquake travel time data so you can image the interior of the Earth. Mathematically, it is pretty similar to how we image the interior of anything, including medical imaging. So he had figured out a new way to approach this inverse problem, which was mathematically more sound. And he wanted someone who had experience with seismic tomography to show up and write software to apply his method to a large data set. So I said, this is, this is exactly you know, a step, a halfway step to what I want to do, which is really just more 
um, computer science and quantitative analysis based. And it's in France, which I have, I've always wanted, I'd always wanted to live there. I've traveled there. My father grew up there a little bit. So when we first Skyped, I started speaking French to him and he said he was just overjoyed. Aww. We got along. It was a really good um, connection, pretty effortless connection in terms of energy level, nerdiness. And we got along really well immediately. And I told myself that maybe this was something that had been missing in the relationship I'd had with my advisor up until that point. Mm -hmm. So long story short, I spoke with him. He said that, you know, in terms of credentials, I was really the definition of what he was looking for. And on top of that, he liked me. On top of that, I spoke French. And on top of that, I'd be willing to accept almost no money to live in France. <laughs> Does not pay very well, postdocs in France. Um, and again, it was just sort of like an improbable confluence of circumstances that I benefited from. Awesome. And so where is, is where in France were you living? I was living in Strasbourg, which is northeastern France. It's right on the German border. Actually, people there go into Germany to buy cigarettes and Germans come into France to buy cheese. Oh, wow. Yeah. And like the, the word sounds kind of German to me. I like it's like. Right. Strasbourg. Yeah. So, or Strasbourg. It, so a lot of the, you know, history is a blend of German and French and Alsace as a territory changed hands back and forth. Franco-Prussian War saw it ceded to the Germans and then World War One, the French took it back. Mm -hmm. World War Two, the Germans took it back. Now it is solidly French. There is French, Germ there is Franco-German peace now. There's Franco-German harmony, which is wonderful for everyone. And, but it is a cool sort of cultural blend of French and German history, lifestyle, food, architecture. Yeah. Was that the first time you've lived um, outside of the US? It is. I spent in total about seven months in Indonesia, but I was never living there. Right. And I'd traveled pretty extensively in Europe and in France before, but again, I'd never lived there. Mm -hmm. So how'd you find living there? Absolutely loved it. Not to sound cheesy, but I think that I kind of found a better version of myself there. Oh, so nice. I felt really, I felt really at ease. I also showed up just wanting to blend in, which is something I'd never really been inspired to do much. I don't know why, but over there I really wanted to blend in. So, you know, I, especially to make my French better, I just started copying people around me. I know that imitation is the highest form of flattery, but I really started copying people around me like a child, trying to absorb the language that way, you know, ordering what people ordered, trying to get on the same rhythm in terms of coffee, fashion, things like that. I went over there and really just tried to melt myself in, into the magma of Alsatian culture, right? So, but it, it was it was cool. I did move over there alone. I did have an advantage in terms of speaking French at like an advanced intermediate level before I showed up. But of course, there were there were difficulties um, adjusting to the culture, realizing that the stores all close on Sunday in Alsace. So if you don't have groceries for Sunday, you're either going to McDonald's or you're going to bed hungry. Uh, um, in terms of being apart from family, I guess I was kind of used to that because I live in California, but I'm from the East Coast. Um, adjusting to the work culture, I was really on board with the work culture that I saw over there. I found people being 
much more gentle with themselves in terms of work-life balance. And I found that, I know I'm very biased, but for what it's worth, I think that beauty takes a higher priority in French culture than in American professional culture. You're not supposed to work yourself to death. That aesthetic is not sexy over there. And it is unfortunately in vogue over here, especially yeah. in tech. Oh, yeah. So, man, I guess that's a pretty good place to transition. I'm like up into what you're doing now. And if you're able to maintain a bit of work-life balance that you learned over here, over there in your job now. Fortunately, I am. I am. So I took a job as a data scientist, exactly what I wanted to, to do at a company that started, it began as a startup, it's called Jovi Aviation. And now it is technically a unicorn. We have uh, over 600 employees and some major corporate sponsorships, um, including not limited to Toyota and Uber. Essentially what we're, we build electric helicopters. So zero emission helicopters with the aim being providing people with an option for affordable urban mobility. So the idea is to take a helicopter instead of a car or a bus in order to get around a city. But ultimately the goal is pricing this so the middle class is included. Yeah, I was about to ask what affordable means. Are we talking Uber prices? So essentially if you were to take a, a Joby helicopter every day, then that would be approximately the cost of owning a car. Wow, cool. So you could choose between the two. And if you live in a city, or let's say that you're a couple and you have two cars or family of two cars, maybe you could get one of them, get rid of one of them. Yeah. And then in an emergency. And the other thing is these being an option for emergency transport, medical, also they are looking at the option of equipping these with firefighting technology especially relevant given how that our headquarters almost burned down. It was evacuated Wow! during the recent forest fires in Santa Cruz. And um, so moving anything safely from A to B with zero emissions is the goal. But obviously the, the, the most important cargo, as it were, would be people. And so you're a data scientist for them. What kind of data are you working with? And like, I mean, it sounds like you got really used to processing a lot of data in grad school, and then you wrote software in your postdoc. Um, can you connect all of this together for me? I'm delighted you asked, because I can. So the, at the crux here, the, the motif through all of this is just designing your own tools to answer questions related to complicated data. The data in the setting of, in the context of Joby, we have an aircraft that generates about five gigabytes of time series data every minute. All the systems on the plane, all the communication systems, their flight computers, actuators. That's, an actuator is a term for whenever you turn a command and an energy into physical motion. So like a, the thing that turns the propeller, the thing that adjusts the flaps, those are all actuators. This whole communication system, you know, stuff like batteries, altitude, but also just the packets of information that various computers are sending to one another. We keep track of this in across about 100 data files, and some of these have you know 50 columns. So you're looking at a, a pretty high dimensional data space. And it's time series data. They're complicated for a number of reasons, including the fact that they're auto-correlated. You know, these are not random samples. It's time series process that resembles itself through time. And um, 
so one of one of my jobs is to dis, is to score how well the simulator approximates the actual plane. One of our paths to certification is going to be proving that our software, which is going to include some machine learning, works well on a simulator. Well, one of the ways you show how well it works on a simulator is you define what are the safe conditions of operation on the simulator. And you could do that by flying a plane on zero battery, flying a plane in a hurricane that's a couple hundred degrees. You can do whatever you want in these simulators in order to show this is sort of like the manifold or the, um, the envelope of safe flying conditions. Well, if the FAA believes your simulator, then you don't have to fly a plane and crash it over and over again to prove the limits. Wow. So simulator, I was thinking, oh, it must be for training, but it's literally so you can make a convincing model of the plane that you, like you said, don't have to crash a bunch of times. Yes. And to your point, that's, that's also, you're exactly correct. It is for training too, because if we say you're good at flying the simulator, that means that you're also probably qualified at flying the real plane. They handle similarly. Obviously, you need to be a pilot. The thing is shaking. But um, they actually do have simulators which incorporate the real physical parts of the plane, and you fly them in a hangar. So you know, the more and more um, machine learning software that we have on this device, the more we need to prove that our software is safe and that we can, people can bet their lives on it working. And I don't want to scare people and have them think that you know, these planes are going to be flying themselves. That may be an end goal. But at least the, the near goal would be something like augmenting human decision making with a machine learning algorithm, saying like object detection. Oh, that looks like a big bird flying towards us. You should, you should move to the right. Or the batteries are running low. You might want to slow down a little bit, something like that. So if you want to, essentially this all ties back to weird time series data and weird time series data from this plane. How do you compare weird time series data? That's kind of what I did for my PhD. I compared weird time, I looked for earthquakes in, I, I looked for waves and seas of noise. <laughs> I was looking for earthquakes, which happen very rarely, but they're distinct and they tie back to physical processes. And I was looking for them when most of the time in a seismic record, it is a non-earthquake or it's local noise. So how do you pick out important features from time series data that may not occur on regular intervals and compare them to one another, to other time series data, and it kind of relates. It's a little bit of a stretch, but I promise the math holds up. It kind of relates to what I'm doing for Joe B. I'm just throwing more of my statistical training, which admittedly does come from the EE. That's what I'm doing. I'm throwing the statistical sink at weird data, which is what I wanted to do when I approached my advisor and I said, let me do some machine learning stuff. I want to throw statistical sink at these data. She said no, and I guess eventually I found a way to do that. And and in that sense, I, I should be very grateful. And I am very grateful that I, I finally have a chance to do that. Yeah, that's great. And it's, um, yeah, it's like you really were able to bridge your PhD and what you were doing into like a job it, it sounds like you really like. It's going well. I really like our team. I think that one of the reasons why I like our team so much and why our team works so well is because it's diverse. And it's it's diverse not only in terms of the stuff that is where there's a lack of diversity, it is ugly or cruel, you know, like systemic level disadvantages for people mm -hmm. based on who they are, how they look, mm -hmm. how they speak, et cetera. But it's also diverse in, in terms of, you know, once you, once you get rid of that and you satisfy these basic conditions for a humane society, then you want to have people 
who think differently. And we have people with PhDs in aeroscience, um, aeroscience, aerospace engineering. We have a PhD in physical oceanography, a PhD in physical ecology. Wow. So looking at like theoretical ecological models. And just now um, we were collaborating with someone who has an actual PhD in data science. And we we're all conversing as people with sort of like a different voice to be heard in this overall conversation of how do you solve these problems. So in that sense, that's kind of why I belabored it for a second. And it's been, I, I feel like we have two types of diversity. The minimum types of diversity, which is related to, you know, like moral diversity, but also intellectual diversity in the sense that we have people with very different training. So they bring very different types of acumen to the overall pro problem solving process. And are all of these people working in like the data science space now? And I'm also trying to think of like, how big is this team? Our team right now is fewer than 10 people. But when I started, it was two. I was the third team member, kind of second and a half because we borrow people from other departments. So people who are battery experts, they will designate one lackey to be the sort of the mole on the data team. And that person mm -hmm. hangs out on our team and looks at the codes we're writing to help us better analyze battery data. Huh. So different teams have been doing that. Software verification team's been doing that. Um, the research team structure in industry is very different from the research team structure in academia. Mm -hmm. But suffice it to say, there are a number of teams that are more specialized than we are, and they kind of send representatives to communicate with us. We're sort of like agnostic data mercenaries. Give us a problem, we'll build you a tool, you tell us what this tool needs to do, and we'll take care of the math and the Python for you. Huh, cool. And so how does the team differ? And I guess like your experience overall, coming from academia into like a startup-ish culture, like mm -hmm. how does that, how is it similar and different, I guess? Pros and cons? I would say it's pretty similar in the sense that at least in, in my academic experience, there wasn't a ton of hierarchy. Mm -hmm. People, you know, research group meetings turn into everybody talking. Mm -hmm. And ideally, you know, taking turns talking, but sometimes talking over one another. And in that sense, it, it felt like there's no one's tiptoeing or, you know, no one's like really minding her words because the boss is on the Zoom call or something like that. It feels like there aren't hierarchical barriers among us. Um, in terms of difference, for one, uh, face value, the coding standards are much higher. They're much higher. You have to follow pretty strict development guidelines. You have to do things like unit testing, full documentation. Um, when I was doing my PhD, I had to write a lot of code, but it was a, quite a learning curve when I started. I actually bombed a couple job interviews before I started to get better at coding. Not in the sense, because in during my PhD, it was always like, well, if it works, then it works. <laughs> and for them, it said, well, if it, if it doesn't work, how am I going to know how to fix it? So you have to equip it with all the appropriate unit tests to make sure that you can determine the provenance of an error. Um, it has to be scalable for production. It has to be documentable. So you're not the only person who, let's say that you leave the company, other people have to be able to maintain your codes. And so in that sense, there was more, there was more responsibility and higher standards. And I mean, it's, yeah, in your case now, literally people's lives are gonna be on the line of this code, so you have to do a really good job. And we have to look no further than like the 
Boeing planes. The Boeing or an issue that, you know, hits home for a lot of people in California, basketball fans around the world, Kobe Bryant. He died in a helicopter accident. And um, to put it crudely, they flew into a hill. Yeah. Well, this the, the sort of like pilot, um, you know, using machine learning to augment a pilot's observations, that's a perfect example. Having something that detects proximity to any sort of other physical object, whether it's a bird or a hill. Mm-hmm. And um, we are a civilian aerospace company, which I am way more on board with than the alternative. Meaning uh, it's cool for a couple of reasons. A, we don't design things that kill people. B, we can hire people from other countries and give them visas. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to have security clearance. Mm-hmm. And, um, but in terms of we have hired people from you know, military or military contractor backgrounds because they kind of solve similar problems. All these problems start to sound pretty similar in math. Detecting yeah. a hill from a helicopter doesn't look that much different from detecting a missile from a helicopter mathematically. Yeah. It's like a common filter routine. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so do you like in at Joby, are you like, I'm going to stay here indefinitely? Or do you have like other problems that you're interested in? Or, you know, are you just like, I'm enjoying this. I'm going to keep going. I think right now for the for the first time in a long time, perhaps ever, I feel like I'm in a, a really good spot and I don't really need to prove myself to myself. Hmm. I'm enjoying work. It's rewarding um, for what it's worth. It is lucrative. And I'm I'm learning a lot, and I like the people I'm working with. And so I envisage staying at this company for a few more years minimum. I would like to eventually transition to taking on more responsibility, maybe like leading certain efforts. The way things are structured now, if you have an idea then you're in charge of that and you would kind of work on it alone. You collaborate with people because our team isn't big enough to have sub teams. But if in the future we did grow to that point, then I would, I would feel comfortable sort of leading it a, a concerted effort on a specific problem we need solved. I think that I would like that. I think that I know that, you know, uh, this sounds egomaniacal, but I think that having done the PhD in engineering thing, it puts me in a position where I appreciate the difference between scientists and engineers. And that's sort of like a vulgar distinction that I don't want to harp on too much. But the, the ingredients of getting a master's and the ingredients of succeeding as an engineer, there are some key differences from the ingredients of a PhD and succeeding as a scientist. So do you want to, do you want to tell us what those differences are? I think sometimes engineers are better at answering questions, and I think sometimes scientists are better at asking questions. Hmm. Yeah. But you need the both. Sometimes either group can be too zoomed in. Sometimes either group can be too zoomed out. But I think it's um, having done both, I can kind of, I can relate. I can empathize with sort of like bad problem-solving habits and good problem-solving habits Mm -hmm. that pertain more to one, you know, crucible of training than the other. But um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I'm happy where I am, and I think that it's in the cards for me to to take on more responsibility. Long term, though, um, I don't know. Uh, to be perfectly forthright, I would love to wind up in France again. I loved it there so much. Oh, cool. Um, also, to be just speaking from the heart, I would love to 
more directly work on environmental problems. Mm -hmm. I think environmental problems are fascinating. I think they're pressing. Mm -hmm. You know, and in a sense, um, emission-free urban mobility is in line with addressing environmental problems and some of the like moral corollaries that come with environmental problems. Environmental problems don't affect everybody equally. Right. They don't affect people who are more comfortable for unfair reasons than they affect most people. Right. So I think that you know Joby is a company that is going to contribute towards a better future. But who knows if there's something if I can leverage my skill set to to work with a team that wants to directly combat climate change and that would be really cool. Yeah. And I definitely wouldn't shy away from an opportunity to do something like that. Yeah. Cool. So do you have any advice for someone who wants to maybe go into data science or who thinks they might want to get a PhD or even would you give advice to your former self to do things any differently? In terms of my formal self, formal self, former Former? self, yes. I guess I do sometimes address myself formally, but uh, that notwithstanding, I think that I would tell myself to stay the course because ultimately I'm in a really good place right now. And I think that a lot of that is because I stuck with it. I, I prioritized having long-term options. And I think that that could sort of transition into my advice for any prospective PhD or graduate students. Yes, do it. I'd say do it. Um, it's not necessarily going to be easy. It probably shouldn't be easy. But I think that someone once told me that expertise is looking at a problem and seeing more order. And a PhD and a master's are enriching in the sense that they, they confer that expertise onto the people who work in order to complete them. So I think having problem-solving acumen, it'll help professionally. In my opinion, philosophically, it helps in a lot of different aspects of life. Um, I would encourage people to do it, especially if you don't know what to do. Looking back on it, I didn't have immediate career plans for after undergrad, so doing a PhD was sort of like a reckless thing that I thank myself for later. Mm. (laughs) I bought myself six years to figure out what I want to do, and now that I'm finally doing that thing, looking back on it, it all makes sense. That feels like a, a pretty good place to end it, and so I really appreciate your being on the show, Cooper. Thanks, Jay. I appreciate you um, giving me a chance to flap my gums. (laughs) I think that what I went through as a PhD student and the ways in which it changed my life, that's something that I think about often. And increasingly, as I feel comfortable with, you know, how my life is going professionally, um, I, I look back on it fondly. And it was really tough. And I can totally relate to people who are going through it now. And part of me just wants to relate to those people. Mm-hmm. You know, part of me wants to hear other people's stories. And that's why I'm glad that you're doing what you're doing because it's a way for those of us who've gone through it to hear what it was like for someone else. And it's a way for people who are going through it now or are thinking about it to have more company in making an important decision. Yeah. Yeah. And just a reminder that we're all, we all struggled through it and you can get through it. That's it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please follow us on our social media pages and get in touch.